In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. As Rick said, we're listening just at the beginning um, to a letter we think Paul wrote to an early church associated with the church in Ephesus, which is now in modern-day Turkey. And we're calling this series Song and Dance because it just turns out that the, the letter to the church at Ephesus breaks down into two equal parts. The first three chapters are all about We'll call it the song of the gospel, uh, the music that's meant to be, find its way deep within. Chapters four through six are about the dance of the gospel. No song doesn't inspire a dance, and no dance can last for long without being inspired by the song. So that's where we're going. And here we are on the front end of it, so we're kind of in that first early section of the whole letter, and so we're talking about song. And so I'm going to start today with a song with a certain fear and trembling because I made this decision about two weeks ago not knowing that Kanye West would esteem himself so strongly in the last several days. So, did you hear that? That's the can of worms opening. Um, I have no comment on those comments. I'm only referring to him because of the album that came out three years ago called Jesus is King. Maybe you heard it. But it turns out that at the time that that album was released, there was a companion album um, of just the choir. Just the choir. And the first track on that album is called, of all things, Count Your Blessings. Well, we're going to listen to one minute of it, and then I'm going to give you a two-question pop quiz. So on the edge of your seats, listen carefully, class. class, of all the genres of music out there, what genre, what type of music is that? Gospel. Excellent. You're so far so good. All right. Now here's the, here's the extra credit question. What kind of music does gospel music originate from? What, is its, what are its roots? I'm sorry, English? Slave songs, spirituals, spirituals. Now, okay, it's not the only influence, but if that ain't there, then there ain't no gospel, right? There ain't no gospel music without spiritual songs. Spiritual songs were written, if you will, composed in the field. Those who lived by the lash were sustained in the field by the spirituals. Howard Thurman was a theologian of the last century, and... He's an interesting theologian. He, he did not believe that Jesus was divine. He did believe that Jesus was a representative of those who identified with the marginalized, which makes his discussion about the spirituals all the more interesting because there are those who would go listen to Negro spirituals and, and almost critique them saying, 
you know, those, those songs, they, they were very much, those people lived under oppression and yet their songs were so otherworldly, so out there that like, how did that ever happen and, and why did they bother? Why did they bother waiting for the next life? Why didn't they work harder on, you know, reforming this life? And of all people, it's Howard Thurman who kind of pushes back against that analysis to actually come to the defense of the importance of those spirituals that then give rise to gospel music. And he put it this way. What greater tribute could be paid to religious faith in general and to the slaves' religious faith in particular than this? It taught a people how to ride high to life, to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned hope that the environment with all its cruelty could not crush. This was a sung faith which enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to live. Don't go talking down about no spirituals, he's saying. Don't go, don't go ascribing to them a certain superficiality because they spoke of another life in the face of all of the, the terror and torment of this life. It was those songs that allowed them to face their days with valiant and persevering hearts. Those songs matter. It was a sung faith, and they are not ashamed to say it or sing it. Now, I know that nobody in this room can relate to that experience. None of us can. I can't. But I might say that we have the same need as those who wrote those songs for different reasons. Those in the field were always tempted to despondency and despair. We have our share of that for different reasons, but I would say that yours and my challenge, yours and my temptation is not to despondency, but to complacency. Everything's fine. I will continue to value those things that I value until I discover that they are frail and fragile. There's all sorts of stuff that you and I value that we don't realize how frail and fragile they are until everything gets taken out from underneath us, and then what? We need a sung faith. As I was sitting with friends around a fire earlier this week, there's a part of us sometimes where we wish there would be somebody that kind of could stand outside of us and say, you know, those things that you were worried about, they matter. They just don't matter as much as you think they do. Like, I need that outside of me. I need a melody of my heart that will reach deeply into my soul so that when all the other music around fades or just turns out to be noise, that I am not left crippled. I want to talk about the song of our heart. I want to talk about this sung faith that speaks to what we most need. And we're going to listen to the first 11 verses of Paul's main passage, and then we're going to focus on the first three verses, but we're going to hear it all. And what we're going to consider are three things that we need to reckon with. It needs to work deeply into the song of our heart so that whenever all the other music fades, this sticks, this remains. And we're going to listen to these three verses under three heads, three things that are true for anyone 
who is in Jesus, and it's this. Anchored, alive, and adored. Anchored, alive, and adored. We're going to be in Ephesians 1. We'll start in verse 3. We'll go all the way to verse 14, but then we're just going to back up and study the last, the first three verses of that passage. So, if you will, would you stand? We'll get started. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the mouthful word of the Lord. You said. If Paul had submitted these verses to his Greek teacher, it would have been marked up in red. <clears throat> For this reason, what you just heard in the original language was one uninterrupted run-on sentence. The English translators just did you a favor by breaking it up into five. He would never come up for air. Can you imagine the Greek teacher? No, stop, no, no, not again, fail, right? That's it. He just, he can't stop speaking. He won't come up for air. He is so literally enthusiastic about what he has to say. What is he enthusiastic about? He is enthusiastic about the blessings of God. The blessings from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing, he terms it, in the heavenly places. And before we even talk about what those blessings are, we should pause for just a second and, and note this. He's talking about every spiritual blessing. Uh, We wouldn't be surprised to hear him say that, but we probably should ponder that just for a minute as modern people. We're modern. We live in a industrialized, commercialized, commodified technology, technological world. Everything is tangible. Everything is measured. Everything has an index. As believers, whether in the God of the Lord Jesus Christ or some other, in a modern world, in a culture like ours is, it is sometimes tempting 
to kind of take the idea of God's blessing and always equate it with physical things, tangible things, accolades, affirmations, promotions, all number of things. And all of those things are fine. None of those things are, are, are uh, uh, without reputation. None of those things are evil or, or problematic. They're things that Paul would say are worthy of being grateful for, things worthy of giving God praise for. And yet, all of those things that we might typically associate with God's blessing, they're all frail. They're all fragile. They can all change and dissipate and be forgotten too quickly. And so for Paul to want to talk about blessings that are spiritual blessings, he's reaching for things that are deeper, that are inner, that do not change when your circumstances change. And that's what we want to talk about here. We want to talk about counting your blessings that are spiritual blessings that certainly reflect certain physical, tangible realities, but things that can't be taken from you. What's the first? It's what you hear there in verse 3. Every spiritual blessing that we've been received in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What's he talking about there? The blessing that we first must count in order to walk in hope is that you're his and then you're set apart for his purposes. To be one who has trusted Jesus, who looks to him as the salvation, the savior of your soul, is to be, in Paul's words, in Christ. That idea, in Christ, in Jesus, in him, it'll show up 36 times through the entirety of this letter. It is a huge idea, a huge doctrine that each of us have to grapple with. It's called being united to Jesus by faith. And it's not just that you trust him like I trust this platform. It's that you're in him. Almost metaphorically speaking, like you live in Mills River or you live in Arden. Where you are has impact on how you are and who you are. So in another letter that Paul writes in Colossians 2, he says, for those whose faith is in Jesus They've been delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's as if you've been taken uprooted from one place, one status, and relocated into a new status, a new place, theologically speaking. And to be in him is, first of all, to have been chosen, to have been deemed, designated, marked as his set apart for him and for his purposes. And that's interesting, but that too is a monumental doctrine that goes from cover to cover of the Bible. The idea, the doctrine of election, not like what we're going to have here in a few weeks, but the idea that you've been chosen and that you've been chosen by his choice. But note the when When were you chosen? He says, before the foundations of the world. You got to sit with that. I got to sit with that. To have been chosen in him is to have occurred at a time before there was anything, 
before there was a you and before there was any ever choice you ever made, good or bad. His decision to make you his had nothing to do with a decision that you made. So let me, let me flesh that out by way of a contrast. Some of you may have been to elementary school once. And some of you may have gone to recess at least once. And it's possible, I don't know whether they allow this or not anymore, there was this game called kickball. And somehow two captains would emerge and they would say, pick teams. And then the pool of us would stand around waiting for the captain, each captain to pick one person at a time. And there were some of us that were more energetic going like Arnold Horshack, oh, oh, pick me, right? And then the rest of us more reflective types would kind of stand in the back going, I don't need to be, appear so desperate, right? Whereas inwardly we're going, please pick me, please pick me. And at the same time saying, please don't pick me last. Please don't pick me last. <clears throat> we all felt that, right? And that's how kickball teams went. Because that, that's a little metaphor. Elementary school, recess, playground, playing kickball, that's a metaphor for life. Because that's how usually picks are made. How do you add value to this group? To this thing? Do you align? Do you have an aptitude? Do you work? Do you fit? That's how choice is usually thought of. That's how people are usually chosen for everything. You've been chosen for all sorts of things on the basis of those aptitudes. That is not how choice is operating here as the blessing of God. His choice had nothing to do with your aptitude. His choice had nothing to do with whether, you were ever imp whether he was ever impressed with you. His choice had everything to do with his decision. And therefore, his choice is entirely a gift. It is entirely a grace. It has absolutely nothing to do with whether you deserved it or not. If I could, if I could bring this blessing of his election of you, if you are in Jesus, down to simplest terms, it's this. Any decision that he made in eternity cannot be overturned by anything in time. Any decision that God ratified in eternity is a decision that none of us can overturn in time. The choice he made he did before you ever did anything such that any choice you make, you can't undo his. This is the blessing of God. This is the blessing of God. And I know that I'm worried about stuff, that I wish I could stand outside of my stuff and go, that matters just not as much as you think. This matters more. And somehow, with his help, we will gain some insight into that because that is his choice and that is his blessing and we have to count it. And we have to come back to it because you will forget. That's kind of why you're here today because you probably forgot. I did. Now, when you hear that, there is perhaps coming over you a great consolation. It's also possible that you hear that and go, why doesn't that just encourage even more complacency, right? Like, if that was known and determined and decided before I made any choices, then why should I care about any choices that I make? 
what difference do my choices make if that choice in him is what matters most? What an excellent question. I'm glad you asked. Because the second blessing we need to count needs to reckon with that kind of, what do we do with that? When you hear, even as he chose us from before the foundation of the world, first question should be, chose us for what? If you got picked for the kickball team, um, the team captain did not say, you've been picked, congratulations, now go sit. And you go, I thought we were going to play. Right. I thought we were going to play. What is it that we have been chosen for? Well, Paul answers your question right on the heels of telling you that you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You were chosen so that you might be holy and blameless before him. So that you might be holy and blameless before him. That language, holy and blameless, that is very much the Old Testament language of sacrifice. Israel, on a number of occasions, were instructed to bring sacrifices, often sometimes for sin, at other times out of gratitude, a thank offering, a wave offering, whatever it might have been. When they did, they would pick something that would not be for their use, but for God's glory. That's in part what it means to be holy, to be set apart. It refers to what we talked about two weeks ago when we talked about saints. Saintliness, you know, godliness, it flows from being a saint. But no one is ever saintly unless they are first of all a saint. And as we said two weeks ago, to be a saint has nothing to do with your moral character. It has everything to do with the fact that you've been set apart. You were chosen. That's what it means to be holy. But what's this part about blameless? If you brought a sacrifice in that season, you would not bring the stuff that was in your attic. I don't know if it was Seinfeld that coined the phrase regifting, but I'm pretty sure that if you ever regifted somebody, you didn't tell them that you did. Because in their minds, they automatically go, Th thanks. I'm glad you put so much thought into it. I'm glad it was your best stuff. <clears throat> Look, um, you're looking for pumpkins, if you hadn't already, and, and when you go to Ingalls to look for a pumpkin, you know that you're looking for symmetry. You know you're looking for a face of it that at least, oh, that, oh now this is a wonderful canvas upon which to do my art, right? And, and you're looking for what doesn't have bruises all over it, right? Because you want to have that much more fun when you smash it on the concrete. Um, you're looking for something that's unblemished. In the Old Testament, sacrificial, sacrificial language about blamelessness, that's talking about sacrifices that were without blemish. When you brought a sacrifice, you brought that which was not bruised. You brought your best stuff. Why? Because God was worthy of it. Not your secondhand stuff, the stuff you most valued, because God is valuable to you. Blamelessness without blemish, this is the language of what it means to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, if I may be very transparent with you, if you want to know how really neurotic your pastor is, I, I have this memory fixed in my brain from the seventh grade when I was in my acne phase, right? And I'm riding home on the bus, and 
back in that day, the acne was really kind of bringing me down and kind of preoccupied that and like, I hate the way I look. And I'm talking to my friend on the bus. She was in the band with me. She played clarinet. And I was, she could tell that there was something kind of covering over me. I don't know, like a cloud. And what's wrong? And I said, oh, it's all my, my, my acne. And she goes, Patrick, all of us have our blemishes. I remember that. Like, that's how nuts I am. But it's true. In that phase, you think that's everything. You're preoccupied by it. You, you're, you want to conceal it. You want to be rid of it. That's what, that what's what blemishes do if you're an adolescent, maybe, if you're neurotic like me. Friends, when it comes to want to walk before the Lord, when it comes to being holy and blameless, we want to be rid of those things that we regret. We want to be rid of those things that we know we failed in. And so when he talks about the language of holiness and blamelessness, there's a part of us like, who, the, nobody's like that. Surely not me. What does it mean then for Paul to say that God has chosen us that we should be holy and blameless? When he says holy and blameless before him, there's in one sense he's talking about that day when we shall see him face to face. When we shall be know, know him as we are fully known. When we shall see Jesus as he is and we shall see that he is like us and we are like him. And in that sense, we will have been fully conformed to the image of his beloved son. And holiness and blamelessness will be a perfect reality without question, without qualification. And that is true in one sense. But beloved, if you are in Jesus, then there is a sense in which the Lord sees you that way now. Holy and blameless because Jesus has given you himself and to be in him is to have his record and his blamelessness, being without blemish. And that's all great, the way God might see me despite me and the way God will see me when I am fully in his presence. But what about now? What about now? I know that some of you are in the military. And if you served, then you may have gone on tours. Maybe you were in harm's way for a long time. Maybe you were on multiple tours. And maybe that tour came to an end. and It was time for you to come home. And if you were, had the good fortune of being able to come home to people that loved you, that wanted to see you, it's very possible that you felt a certain motivation to, uh, to dress in your dress blues or your dress greens or your dress whites, not just because it was protocol, but because you wanted to appear radiant before those who were at home, those who loved you and whom you loved. And if you've ever had the privilege of walking down the aisle, you didn't wear flip-flops and a tank top. I don't think you did. If you did, I apologize. I don't mean to throw you under the bus. <clears throat> it's love, right? Crazy kind of love. <laughs> but on the scatter plot of the bell curve, it's more likely that you wanted to dress up in your full radiance because of the moment. That the, the ideal of what it means to love and to serve, that your future and, and how God sees you inspires your present. It inspires your longing to be as he is. You are radiant and you are gloryful uh, and you want to do that. Now, there's a, a church father of the second century named Irenaeus 
And he said this, the glory of God is a person fully alive. Which is a great idea. And, you know, a lot of modern, like, um, life coaches and gurus, they, they hear a line like that and they kind of borrow it themselves. And they say, you know what he's saying? If you'll just you do you and follow your bliss, it's practically divine. To which Iris Nace would say, oh, you have missed it. It is not simply you do you any more than you can take a flower and imagine a flower, if imagine if a flower could talk, right? Here's a flower and it's blooming and it's full blossom and, and somehow it uprooted itself from the soil and it said to everyone, I am free, right? Yeah, you're also dead. Uh, you may be up out of the soil and you may consider that a version of freedom, but you have just consigned yourself to an early death because you are no longer rooted in the soil of what is true and what your nature is. When Irenaeus says the glory of God is a person fully alive, he's talking about one who is fully alive to the Lord and fully alive to the love of his neighbor. And where those two things are true, there is something profound. Kids, look, I know you got a lot of rules in your house. And it feels like mom and dad a lot of time are saying, no, no, not that, no, no, definitely not that, right? And you're thinking, can I do anything, right? Remember the part about the Ten Commandments where we said, yeah, there's a lot of no's in there, but what are they for? It's not simply to, to put, a, put you in a straitjacket. It's because those rules are life. They're a path to life. I'm reading in Psalm 119 this morning, and, and towards the end it says, um, Give me life according to your promises. Give me life according to your rules. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The blessing of God in calling us to being holy and blameless is a call not simply to be moral, not simply to be ethical, not, not even mostly to be pure, but to find life. Look, I, I challenge you two weeks ago to read Ephesians as often as you can in one sitting, all six chapters. You know what? That's tough for you. Tell you what, just sit down with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. It's only three chapters, half the time. Just read the Sermon on the Mount in one sitting. And at first you go, that's, that's a high bar. And I'm just saying, can you imagine how your life would be different if, man, if everything about anger and about your sexual urges and about the way you use your words and the way you deal with reconciliation and the way you'll deal with enemies, imagine if, if the life that Jesus shows you in the Sermon on the Mount was your life. You know what that would be? That would be life. Because everything that he speaks to, I know, I look at my own heart and I go, <clears throat> that's, a, that's a struggle. And it is a struggle. But there's life on the other side of it. The temptation to want to be seen by you rather than living before an audience of one who is the Lord, Jesus speaks to that. Oh, those who want to pray long prayers to be seen by others. Oh, those, those who anoint their faces with oil when they're, when they're fasting. Oh, those who like to give alms very publicly so that everybody knows, oh, he's so generous, versus doing all of that that you might be seen by nobody else. You don't care about anybody else being seen but by your Father who's in heaven. That's a temptation. Imagine if you were not tempted by just trying to be seen by the rest of you. That's life. The second blessing of which he speaks that we must all reckon with is that he has not just invited us into a moral life, he's invited us into life. 
And for those who are in him, there is life. And that's the blessing we got to count. And yet even as I say that, and even as I have intimated myself, we are fragile, we are frail, and even you can tell us till we're blue in the face, this is life, this is not, I'll go with this. We fail. <clears throat> what, what do we do with that? And that's where you got to count the third blessing. And the third blessing you find there in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Okay, there's the word predestined. That's a spicy word. That's even a radioactive word. And tell you what, why don't we, uh, why don't we lighten it up a little bit by considering one way of thinking about it from, of all places, a clip from Toy Story. This is an intergalactic emergency. I need to commandeer your vessel to Sector 12. Who's in charge here? The Claw. The Claw is our master. The Claw chooses who will go and who will stay. This is ludicrous. Hey, Bozo, you got a brain in there? <gasps> <laughs> Take that! Oh, no! Sid! Get down! <laughs> What's cutting in you, Sheriff? I was... You are the one that decided to climb into this... The claw. It moves. I have been chosen. Farewell, my friends. I go on to a better place. Gotcha. A bus lightyear? No way! you zealots, right? Uh, I think on the outside looking in, people that would say, you believe in predestination? Like, that's nuts. And even, even those that might even countenance the idea of it, there's a part of us that goes, predestination? That, like, if, if so, then um, do my choices make any difference? Um, why am I praying at all? And uh, you want to get your head around this one. If he predestined so much, then good Lord, the amount of evil and suffering in this world, Really? His hands are on the rain all the time. Look, I ain't going to resolve that one for you today or ever. But I do want to set it in context a little bit here in the context of our passage. In love, you were predestined. For what? We'll get to that, but let's just put it this way. If you have a problem with predestination, then you have a problem with grace being the basis for your inclusion. Because if he doesn't mark that out, having nothing to do with your choices, then that means 
that for you to have his favor, at some point, he had to be impressed with one of your choices. You had to demonstrate some sort of, well, I met you halfway, and I, or I, God meets you halfway, and then you meet him halfway, and then he's like, good job, you're in. And then, then you are stuck, not in Toy Story, now, now you are stuck on the gazebo with Christopher Plummer singing, nothing comes from nothing, nothing never could, but somewhere in my youth and childhood, I must have done something good, right? Like, that's where you are. If he didn't work that out, then you had to have done something good if you're ever going to know that blessing. And I'm saying then you've stopped making grace grace. Does that resolve everything for you? No. Does that resolve everything for me? No. But I do want to address it because we have to. So let's, let's just talk. Let's stay narrowly within our lane here. Predestined for what? Predestined? for adoption. Why, why Paul picked that word? Well, <clears throat> it's one thing to be born into a family, uh, um, uh, relate to that family by blood. And from a particular legal perspective, if you are born of blood, uh, certain natural rights and privileges accrue automatically simply by being born of blood. Adoption is entirely of choice. It is a decision on the part of the father and the mother to bring you into their family. Not because of anything in you, but because of their love for that child. And they get to share in the exact same rights and privileges forever without distinction on those who are natural born into that family. Paul is saying, if you're in Christ, you're like the adopted child. You have been brought in having nothing to do with it having impressed no one, and you're just in, and you share in everything that anybody that might be a natural-born child would be. Grapple with that. What's true? What's the blessing in being adopted? This is the truth. You're adored. You are adored. Now, adoration, we tend to think of in certain terms, usually like the grandmother looking at the grandkid, oh, look at my chair up here, I adore you, right? That's, that's adoration. I would, I would like to broaden your horizons a little bit and suggest to you that adoration can come in many forms. It can come in the form of that. It can come in the form of welcome. It can come in the form of consolation. Can I also suggest to you that adoration can come in the form of a scalpel? to lance a boil in you, to excise a tumor in you, metaphorically speaking. It painful, no less loving, no less adoring. Remember Eustace? He, he's greedy. That's only one of his problems. He gets turned into a dragon, encounters Aslan, and Aslan says, um, would you like me to undress you? meaning to get out of these scales. And Eustace is like, no, I got this. And Aslan says, uh, no, you don't. I'm going to have to do this. And then he does. And as by Eustace's own telling, he says he used his claws and it, in his words, hurt like Billy. But it felt so good coming off. That's adoration too. 
adoration by virtue of adoption. Uh, he is on death row, and he's played by Sean Penn, and he encounters a Catholic nun named Mary Jean Prejean, who's played by Susan Sarandon. And here in this very brief clip from Dead Man Walking, he originally solicits her help that he might advocate for his release because he claims that he is innocent. And only through that relationship with this Catholic nun does he finally come <clears throat> to grips with the fact that he did what he did, and now he will die for what he did. But even as he is dying for what he did, it does not compromise her love for him, and what she's about to tell him is the Lord's love for him too. There are spaces of sorrow only God can touch. You did a terrible thing, man, a terrible thing. But you have a dignity now. Nobody can take that from you. You are a son of God, Matthew. Nobody ever called me no son of God before. <laughs> Call me a son of you know what's a lot of times. Never no son of God. Because I never had no, no real love myself. Never loved a woman anybody else myself much good. But figures, I'd have to die to find love. Thank you for loving me. I know I'm going out on a limb here. I know probably very few of you in this room have ever been on death row. Uh, but death walks in you, and it lives in me. And the question is, how could one in death row, and how could any of us whose ways um, can be murderous with our minds before they ever are so with our hands, how can we be loved and considered a child of God? How can we be the recipients of grace? His name is Dr. Dana Cherry, and he grew up in a Jewish home, and his father was a rabbi. <clears throat> and every Yom Kippur, which our Jewish friends celebrated earlier this week, there is a liturgy called the Kol Nidre, which I think, if I read correctly, was written in the 11th century. And in that liturgy, the congregation there in the synagogue on Yom Kippur on Thursday night says this, who shall live and who shall die? Who shall reach the end of his days and who shall not? Who shall have rest and who shall wander? Who shall be at peace and who shall be pursued? Two ways, two options, two fates, two destinies. What determines it? But repentance prayer and righteousness avert the severe decree. And when Dr. Jana Cherry would hear that line every time he would gather with his fellow Jewish friends in the Kol Nidre service at Yom Kippur, he thought to himself, that's terrifying. Who of us can repent enough and be righteous enough and pray enough to be able to ward off all of those severe outcomes of our life? And it was in detecting what he felt like was something he could not resolve in his own heart in that liturgy that he actually became awakened to what Jesus had said. Such that he now looks upon Jesus in this way. 
Jesus was our blameless sacrifice. Jesus was our holy sacrifice. He died that you and I might be living sacrifices. Because inasmuch as he called us to repent and called us to pray and called us to walk in righteousness, if you think that if you do all of that enough to avoid the decree of God's judgment, <clears throat> you are wrong. And the reason I know you're wrong is because Jesus went to his cross for a reason so that he could be that which you never could be for yourself. What does all this boil down to? Um, I hope this is not too cliche and threadbare. Maybe you've heard it before. But I think um, in our world, and the way you and I think, um, we kind of look at God like the flower, and um, we kind of do this. We think, God loves me. Um, he loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And we do that. Uh, bad days, he loves me not. Oh, look, I went to church today. He loves me. What is the takeaway of these blessings that we must count? <clears throat> the line there at the end of the dead man walking line, he goes, I had to, I had to, I had to go to death row in order to find love. You have to die to your thought that you could anchor yourself. You have to die to finding your own life. You have to die to thinking that you will be adored for your own sake. These blessings, I think, encounter us and encourage us to do one thing. Put the flower down. This is not a he loves me, he loves me not world. Your flower doesn't work here. Your flower doesn't resonate with him. You're his because he decided, because of what his son did and to what he has called us. And that's good news. And somehow, in all the things that I thought mattered yesterday, they don't matter so much compared to this way. And that's why we need it to become the song of our heart. And that's why we're spending the time on it. So let's pray. Uh, maybe it all feels really real right now, Father, in the midst of this safe company. It's warm, it's um, dry, nobody's screaming at us. Uh, tomorrow we'll need this again, and every day after that. Would you help us to count our blessings in all the things that afflict us and preoccupy us and <clears throat> hold us captive in some way and Certainly we know that our afflictions are real. They're not imaginary. The struggles that we have are not simply uh, whisked away and waved away with a hand. And clearly you don't assume that will be for us, but you have given us a song. And we would ask that it might maybe move a little bit more deeply into what is our heart. Father, we know that those leaves outside in their brilliance and vividness Next week, many of them will have disappeared. They will have fallen. And so we are given an opportunity to see brilliance before our eyes and to invite us into pausing to stare. I pray that somehow here in this beautiful autumnal vista, that you would cultivate us in a new discipline to every once in a while to stop and consider the beauty of these blessings. That they might work down from just sort of a theological idea into a real reality. 
In Jesus' name, amen.